Hello and welcome to In Times of Love and Hate, a new podcast series from Birkbeck Voices. The episodes in this series are brought to you by academics from Birkbeck's MSc War and Humanitarianism, MA Public Histories, BA Human Geography, BA Archaeology and Geography, and BA Intercultural Communication and Language. My name is Jess Simons, and in this episode I'm joined by a Professor of History at Birkbeck, Joanna Burke. Today we'll be talking about a shift in the culture of sexual violence and harassment, which unfortunately has played its part in society throughout history and up to the present day, but particularly now we may be seeing a shift in momentum, perhaps a turning point for that culture. So Joanna, before we address that, let's talk a bit about your work. Your, your research in the past has focused on the history of sexual violence and perhaps most topically the perception of rape, both in the mass media and among the public. So. Can you fill us in a bit on the kind of questions your research raised? Yeah, I mean, I've been working on the history of violence for a very, very long time, but not sexual violence. And I still remember that moment when I was sitting in an archive reading about wartime violence, actually, the war in Vietnam. And I came across this account by an American man describing how he and his comrades were raping this Vietnamese woman. And he's telling the story, and it's actually quite unusual because normally um, people say other people did it, but I didn't. I saw it happen, but not me. But he was admitting to it. And then he says, at one point in the story, he says, and I was raping her, and then all of a sudden, she turned round to me and she said in English, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And I think those that, that question just was like a bomb going up in my head, you know, insisting on the specificities of violent encounters. And that was when I decided that actually I wanted to write a history of sexual violence, but I, I wanted to actually ask a different question to what other people were asking. And I wanted to ask, well, who's the rapist? Why is it that some men, and it's normally men, um, can carry out acts of sexual violence? And why do some people not act in violent, sexually violent ways. So that was really my starting point. And of course, I'm an historian. So what was very interesting for me was just how deeply embedded sort of false ideas about violence are in our society. Um, you know, the rape myths, you know, the idea that no means yes, the idea that somehow men risk being falsely accused of rape, the idea that in fact, um, if a woman resists, it's always successful. The fact that you know, these are deeply embedded myths in our society, mm -hmm. and these were the things I set out to really examine historically. Okay, and you mentioned that you are a historian, but did you, I mean, your research into these topics, it sounds like it had a massive element of the psychology behind this movement. Is that correct? That is right, because what you see when you start looking at sexual violence, you see very, very quickly, actually, in the, from the late, mid to late 19th century onwards, you see psychology, psychiatry, and the medicalization of sexual violence coming into society and that has a major impact on the way we think about perpetrators and indeed victims and the way we set out to find solutions for what they're doing. I mean my work is historical but I do go up to the present and I go up to the present for a really important reason I think and that is because so many people in our society are affected by sexual violence. I mean even if you look at the official statistics you know they're really quite appalling. Today, in England and Wales, every single hour, eight women are sexually assaulted or raped. You know, we're talking about 85,000 women a year and 12,000 men. And this is only those people who are reporting it 
reporting rape. Mm-hmm. You know, 85% of people who are raped actually don't report it. So we're talking about a major scourge in our society. And you mentioned phenomenal numbers there and, and obviously some questions that you raised through your research. Did you get some answers into the psychology behind it and, and why it is still such a massive issue in the present day? There are lots of reasons why people carry out acts of sexual violence. Um, partly it's because they can get away with it. Obviously it's because they don't care about the other person and they think the other person is somehow less than human or doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't harm them as much. But also I think it does have to do with the fact that, you know, sex is a very difficult topic. It's something we find hard to talk about and quite often people actually do misunderstand and misinterpret the signs they're getting from the other person and I think we have to take that very seriously. That's not to excuse them in any way whatsoever but it is to say that you know we have to tackle the fundamentals of masculine sexuality if we are going to solve this problem. Now the other thing I think is really important is you know we have to always remind ourselves that actually sexual violence is not inevitable. And again, this is why I'm an historian. By looking at history, we can see that in certain periods of history, actually, there's very low levels of sexual violence. In other periods of history and in other cultures, it's very, very high. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why is there such variation? And actually, there's very, very good evidence to show that in societies and in periods of history where there's low levels of militarization, high levels of female employment, high levels of gender equality, sexual violence is very low. So basically, if we want to tackle sexual violence, we also have to tackle really systemic inequality in our society. And we were talking about bringing it up to the present day there. Let's talk about perhaps one of the biggest case studies in several years, um, the multiple allegations of sexual assault by the film producer Harvey Weinstein. These allegations span several decades. Um, they've prompted many women and men in the entertainment industry, in politics, in media, and all these different industries to come out and speak up about their experiences of harassment. And there's been a lot of talk about how encouraging this movement is, but I mean, what's different this time? I mean, because we've had people come out and talk about their experiences before. Why has it really taken off this time? I think it's a wonderful uh, thing that we're seeing in the present because people are, particularly women, but not only women, are actually finding confidence to say, actually, it happened to me, me too. It's so, so important because what that is doing is it's saying, actually, I don't need to feel shamed about this. I did nothing wrong. This is not about me. This is about what this other person did, and I don't have to feel ashamed about it. Sexual harassment itself as a concept is really interesting because actually it was invented very recently. It was invented in 1975 by African-American women taking cases to court against are men who were sexually harassing them. And what they were doing is they were borrowing this concept from the idea of racial harassment of that of that time. Now what we're seeing now though is actually we're seeing white, very privileged women coming out and using this term and accusing men of sexual um, harassment. This is important 
We have to remember, though, that in a sense, they're very privileged to be able to do this. Most women are not in their position because for most women, in fact, you know, coming forward and saying, this is what my boss is doing can destroy their lives. Mm-hmm. Coming forward and saying, this is what my partner did, this is what my husband did. This, this is a very dangerous thing for most of us women who don't have that power. So what I find really hopeful about this current movement is that it is actually giving people a legitimacy to say, actually, this is wrong. And it's not about me, it's about him, um, or indeed her. I find what you said there about power really interesting because um, I think a lot of what we think about when we, when we do think about sexual harassment, sexual violence, even rape, is it is a notion of power that one person has over another. Um, but you also mentioned the Me Too uh, campaign there. And I think what we're seeing here is a real shift in, in that concept of power. And I think that social media has a really big part to play in that. What, what's your take on, on, um, on the role it has to play in that campaign? Social media has been absolutely crucial to the campaign. I mean, you know, this idea that sexual violence and sexual harassment has been silenced is actually wrong. <laughs> women have always spoken about uh, these sorts of issues. The thing is that they've spoken about it to other women. They've spoken about it to their close friends and lovers and partners. Um, what the social media has enabled women to do is to actually say it to a large group of people and to recognize that they're not alone. Now, for all we hear about, you know, the um, social media being a place where you can, you know, it's dangerous sometimes, actually that's correct, but it also can be a place of liberation and freedom and a recognition that actually what happened to me was not isolated. There are thousands, tens of thousands of people who have gone through exactly the same thing, and that's deeply empowering. What is the key to maintaining this kind of momentum then? I mean, we've talked about social media. Are there any other avenues that you think that we should be exploring when it comes to um, maintaining this momentum of people speaking out about sexual harassment? There are so many things that we all can do as global citizens to keep this momentum going and indeed to make a change. I think, though, that one of the things that is not mentioned enough, or indeed at all, is this need also to get men to speak openly about their own acts of power without feeling that that this is a great threat to everything that, that they have. Um, you know, men are generally good people. One of the things I've learned working on sexual violence and sexual harassment is that this idea that it's violence and harassment is, is part of masculinity. I think it's totally wrong quite the opposite. You know, men who do these things, these are the dregs of masculinity. This is the, you know, the bad bit of masculinity. There is a good masculinity and we need those good men to come out and also speak about it without feeling that they are threatened. And I think that's really important to get men on board in this this discussion. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, you are a professor here at Birkbeck and part of your role is supervising PhD students with an interest in the history of topics like the ones we've talked about today. Um, Tell me a bit about the kind of research they're engaging with and what kind of projects you have going on here at Birkbeck. Oh, I love uh, supervising PhD students. I have I have my group of 12 who are fantastic and they, they work on a huge range of topics. I mean, most of them are working on something related to, to violence. I mean, I have quite a few working on, on warfare, for example. I have a, quite a few working on a history of emotions. But also sexual violence is a topic that I'm really keen on not only supervising but also increasing the number of people I'm supervising in that field. In fact, just the other day we have advertised two 
PhD studentships um, for people working on any aspect of the history of sexual violence. This is part of a new project that I've just started. It's funded by the Wellcome Trust, and it's called Sexual Violence, Medicine and Psychiatry. So, you know, anyone who's interested in working on a medical or psychiatric aspect of sexual violence anywhere in the world, can be any discipline, history, philosophy, anthropology, whatever you like, you can apply for them. The applications are due on the 31st of January. And I also have next year, I'm a couple of postdocs. We'll be advertising again in that field. So I'm really keen because, you know, Birkbeck has a great PhD community. I have a wonderful PhD community because I really enjoy that part of my job. Just before we go as well, um, I wanted to mention the Birkbeck Trauma Project. Is this something that, you know, people that are looking to come and study with you at Birkbeck, is that something they could get involved in? Yes, absolutely. The Birkbeck Trauma Project started a few years ago, actually as the pain project, because at that stage I was writing a, a book on pain and I was uh, I had a little community of people working on it. But then we decided to actually expand it because, you know, pain is, is trauma, um, but also, you know, I do a lot of work on psychological trauma, psychiatric trauma, as do many people people in my department and indeed the the college so the trauma project we have relaunched it and we're encouraging people to sort of get involved in that brilliant it's been fantastic to speak with you today joanna thank you so much for joining us thanks so much i really enjoyed talking to you jess